You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Mark writes, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after the other, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. You know, one of the questions I think every one of us have asked at some point in our lives is the question, how will I know? We ask this question as we begin to approach the end of our high school years, and maybe there's seniors here who are asking that question, or juniors who are seniors to be, and your, your question is, how will I know if I should go to college, and should it be a four-year school, or a two-year school, or maybe I should go to trade school, or start my career? How will I know? Then there's others that have asked that question in their career path, and you know there's an immediate honeymoon of uh, changing of jobs, and you get to the new place, and you have your new cubicle, and your new computer, and everything's new, and then months in, or maybe years in, you begin to ask the question, how do I know whether this should be my career? And then there's the question, how will I know if he really loves me? Now Giselle from Enchanted tried to help us out with that. She said that he will dance with you just to hold you close. He will wear your favorite color to match your eyes. That's how you'll know. That's how you'll know. 
Now, there's others in my life who have approached it in a different way, not with random citizens in a park who sing amazingly well and are choreographed, but instead, they will simply answer our questions, how will I know, by saying, you'll just know. Well, as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, the question that Mark has been trying to answer is more important than where should I go to school or what should I do for a career or even the question, how will I know if he really loves me? The question Mark has been trying to answer is the question, how do I know I am a child of God? How do I know I am a true disciple? And in this passage, he answers very creatively by providing some tools so that as we all walk out of here, we can actually answer the question, how do we know whether we are a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, it's creative, and it takes some work, but I can promise you, if you will work hard, you will come out of here with tools that will allow you to savor how you can know. Look at the big idea in your notes that left to our, ourselves even the most committed disciple of Jesus Christ. Even you who are sitting here saying, I've been saved for decades. Even you who are sitting here saying, I serve here, I serve there. Even you who are saying, I know so much about God's word, may not be an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ, and you might fall away. But thankfully, the gospel gives us the solution. Four questions this passage will ask of us to help us know. Number one, could you betray? Not the person sitting next to you, not the person outside in the neighborhoods. Could you betray? It says in verse 12, and on the first day of unleavened bread. Now, I'll just stop right here and say there's a timing issue. If all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we could draw a conclusion that this is the Passover meal prescribed in the Old Testament, beginning in Exodus 12, that was to celebrate the angel of death that passed over the homes of the Jews in Egypt when they sprinkled the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. We can conclude with some pretty significant certainty that this is Thursday evening heading into Friday of Passover. But then we have the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John in chapter 18 says that the religious leaders would not enter the house of Pilate because that would make them unclean and unable to eat the Passover. Chapter 19 talks about that when Jesus was being crucified, being the day that was preparing for the Passover. So we have a timing issue. But here's what I'd like to say before I explain where I've landed. Beloved, whenever we come across a passage of Scripture that appears to contradict another passage of Scripture, we must ask ourselves, what is our view of this book that we are reading? And if our view of this book that we are reading is that it is the inerrant, inspired, and infallible Word of God, then there are no distinctions of contradiction. The problem then with apparent contradictions is not with the text, but the very fact that we are 21st century Americans reading an English translation of an ancient Greek text. The issue is not the text, the issue is our understanding. And so there are a lot of opinions, and I'm not at a place where I'm ready to be able to write a paper on the absolute 
conclusion of the timing of this meal, but I can tell you where I land about this meal, and that is I do not believe this is the Passover prescribed in the Old Testament. I think that there are elements that are present here, but I believe what the gospel writers are doing is showing that Jesus was using elements of that Passover meal to show us this is the new Passover. This is the Christian Passover. And I'll explain that more when we get to verse 22. And so even though all the gospel writers use the word Passover here, I think they're looking at it with the lenses of their Christian understanding and saying Jesus is instituting the Christian Passover. More to come, but we'll stop right there. And so Jesus sends disciples into Jerusalem And I'll give you two historical nuggets in the text. It says there will be a man carrying a jar that will meet you. Now, why that was significant is because Jerusalem would swell to about three times its normal population. There were people everywhere. Finding a room was nearly impossible. And so the signal that Jesus would have is that there would be a man carrying a jar because typically women carried jars. I think that's interesting. Then, verse 14, the question that Jesus says to ask the master of the house is, where is my guest room? An interesting tidbit is that the word translated guest room is the word translated in in Luke 2.7. There was no room in the inn. So you can have fun using those historical nuggets, studying this text and others. But the setting is this, just like Mark 11, Jesus has ordained what would happen, and he says with absolute certainty details that have not yet taken place. And just as in Mark 11, when Jesus told the disciples to go find the donkey, everything occurs just as he said. Our God, beloved, is sovereign. Verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at table and eating, remember, in the ancient Near East, eating a meal together was the ultimate sign of relationship. And it says that he was with the 12. This was his crew. This was his posse. You know, when we're growing up, the criteria for friendship is rather simple, isn't it? As a boy... The only people who could potentially be my friends were other boys. If you crossed that line into the world of girldom, you could not be my friend. And you all can relate. But as we get older, the criteria for strong friendship becomes personality. It becomes common interests. It becomes whether or not they share the same sense of humor. But as we get older, one of the ultimate criterion... For being a close friend is absolute loyalty. Sticking with one another through thick and thin, and that's who this 12 were. As you read the Gospel of Mark, you see that there were massive storms. There were crowds that were antagonistic. There was King Herod. There were religious leaders that were plotting. There were more storms. There were even demons. And yet this group, this crew, stuck together. And so there they are, sharing relationships, sharing hospitality, and Jesus is sitting with them, and he says, truly, I say to you, this was a phrase that would introduce some important teaching, and so the disciples must have stopped chomping and listened to, what do you have to teach us, Rabbi? And he says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
The word betray means to hand over to authorities to take advantage of. Now, this sent shockwaves in that crew. This sent shockwaves in that loyal band of 12. And it says in verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after the other, is it I? In the Greek, it is surely not I. Jesus gives more detail. Verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the 12. Not somebody standing in the shadows, somebody reclining at table. He says, it is the one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And I don't believe this is a signal to the rest of the disciples because if it was, then everybody would know, oh, it's, it's this guy. They still didn't understand, even when that guy left. And even as I'm saying this, I'm wanting us to live in the tension of the disciples. We all know who it is. We saw back in chapter 3, verse 19, that it was Judas who would betray him. We know, but, but let's put ourselves in their sandals for just a moment to linger in the emotion of the moment. And what he's saying by saying it is the one who is dipping bread in the dish with me is this is somebody who is closest to me. Which, by the way, look at what it says in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Look at this. The sin of Judas was predestined by God. Wow. Acts 2.23. Acts 4.28. God's sovereignty is on display vividly in this text. But just as God is sovereign, just as he predetermined this, just as this was part of his ordained plan, man is still responsible. Look at what it says in verse 20. Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better had he never been born. How did one of the 12 get to a place where he could betray his rabbi? Well, the scripture tells us. You can write down John chapter 12 and verse 6. Judas said after Mary had poured out the ointment, why wasn't this sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John tells us, John, who knew Judas, that Judas was not saying that out of a compassionate heart. He was saying it because the greatest expectation he had in his life was money. John 14 verse 11 The religious leader spoke Judas' language. They gave him money. Beloved, Judas bought into the lie that somehow money would satisfy. This reminds me of the point of Ecclesiastes. I'll ask the team to put this quote up on the screen. Solomon reminds us throughout 12 chapters of reflection on the finest things the world could offer of his day. He had tried everything. He had, I read this this morning, he had 700 wives, the pick of the litter of the world, and 300 concubines. He had pursued all of the academic status that you could have in his time. He had all of the possessions. He had all of the animals. It says that he would have ships that would come to him throughout the year and would bring him exotic animals. It said he had camels. That was like Ferraris of their day. Not because of speed, but because of their rarity. This man had everything. And yet he concludes that we should only enjoy what this life offers for what it is intended to provide and expect nothing more. 
Friend, maybe you believe the lie that something this world has to offer will satisfy. It won't. Even a championship on Monday night. It will not satisfy. Take it from the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Take it from the man who had everything. Take it from the man who drew a conclusion that the end of the matter is this. It is not the world. It is worshiping God and obeying him. That will satisfy. And friend, the question must be asked of each one of us, no matter how many Bible studies you've attended, no matter how long you've gone to church, no matter how much you know the Old Testament, could you betray? And the answer is yes. How could we protect ourselves from that? Well, the answer is pursue true satisfaction that can only be found in Christ. Judas was distracted. It was Jesus plus money. And we know the tragic history. One of the 12, one who was closest to Jesus, betrayed him. Second question the text offers us is, could you scatter? Could you scatter? Now, I'm skipping down to verse 26 because Mark has used a literary device we call sandwiching. So think about a sandwich. You've got a piece of bread, you've got meat, and you've got a piece of bread. And so what Mark often does is he will give us a story or an account And then he will give us meat that is related but different. And then he will come back to an account that is very similar. And so what he's doing by doing that is he's drawing our attention to the meat. So I'm going to do the same thing in this sermon by skipping down to the second piece of bread. And that begins in verse 26. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. This was a favorite place for Jesus to gather and to teach his disciples important truths. And so they gather on the Mount of Olives and he says to them, you will all fall away. It's interesting, this word has occurred four times in Mark 9. There it is translated, cause to sin. That's important, we'll come back to it. He says, though, to these closest friends, these 11 now, with Judas having left, you will all fall away. And then he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, and says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is interesting, isn't it? It's interesting just from a logical perspective, but it's interesting when we look at nature. Nature is awesome, and it declares the glories of God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glories of God. Friend, I want to encourage you this summer when you go out on vacation and you detach yourselves from technology for a few moments, walk outside at night, look up at the skies, And see that this is true. The stars declare the glory of God. Nature is fascinating and it teaches us so much. I came across through my study this week a type of animal called the musk ox. They live in the northernmost reaches of our northern hemisphere. And here's a picture of how they approach predators. 
When a predator is around, they actually circle up. And you can see down on the bottom left, there is a picture of how they circle up. And in so doing, they are gathering strength. They are protecting their weak and their young. And and when danger comes, they circle up and they come together. And this is what typically happens. Whenever there is danger in our lives, what we usually do is what we're doing right now, what you all are doing in this room, we come together. Because out there is dark. Out there, the majority of people do not recognize Jesus as Lord. Out there, the worldview that most people have is not a biblical worldview. And so what a glorious privilege we have to circle up on Sundays, to circle up at Bible studies, to circle up for protection. But it says in verse 27 that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. The word strike means to deal a heavy blow that results in severe damage. You know what's interesting is that all of our lives are filled with blows, aren't they? I'm not trying to be Johnny Raincloud here. But just evaluate your life. There are blows, and and there's a wide spectrum of what those blows will do to us, but we all are waiting for the big one, aren't we? Remember when I lived in Los Angeles, when it came to earthquakes, all Los Angelinos were talking about the big one, and everybody that's lived there for some time has experienced earthquakes, whether it be tremors or like I experienced in 1994, that was an earthquake that was more than seven, trust me. But it was significant, but they all said, it's not the big one. And we spend our lives often looking for and anticipating the big one, whether it's cancer, whether it's a heart attack, whether it's a a loved one who dies, whether it's losing a job, losing a dream, having to move out of the neighborhood that we finally got to, whatever it is, we're living in some respects with anticipation of the big one. But the question is, what will happen when the big one happens? Because it will. interesting that the word that Jesus uses in verse 27 is the same one that he used. Would you write this down in Mark 4, 17? Mark 4 is the parable of the sower and the seed. And remember, Jesus talked about different ground and different responses of the seed. And one in particular was the seed that fell on rocky ground. And remember, it sprouted up and there was great expectation of harvest that this is going to be bountiful. But what happened is when the persecutions and the tribulations of life came. There was no root, and beloved, that's the solution. The question to ask ourselves and the question you must ask yourself is could you scatter? And the answer is yes. But beloved, the solution is found in these passages, Psalm 1, 2, and 3. Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8, and this is the one I love most of these three. John 15, 1 through 17. How do you grow your root? How do you ensure that when the big one happens, you do not scatter? You abide in Christ. You abide in Christ. You find your satisfaction in Christ. 
You spend time in the word that points us to Christ. In your prayers, Christ's and his glory is more important than your cultural context. You abide in Christ by spending time with people who move you toward Christ, not away. Friend, remember that. That should be the ultimate criteria for you and the people that you invest in and spend time with. Do they advance you toward Christ or pull you away from him? Because no matter how long you've been saved, no matter how many Bible studies you've been to, no matter how well you know the Old Testament, you could scatter if you're not abiding in Christ. Number three, could you deny Could you deny? Jesus provides the disciples exactly what they need in verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What's awesome about this is Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise from the dead. He's already said it twice in the Gospel of Mark. But here, on the doorstep of his death, he reminds them, I'm going to rise from the dead, and I'm actually going to go to a place I expect you to join me. Wow. And it seems like Peter is encouraged by this, because look at what it says in verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And I think he probably did that if he had a pulpit. Because in the Greek, it's emphatic. Three words that are the most emphatic. I will not. Now, now think about that. Jesus has just been telling them the religious leaders will come against him. He has just said, one of the 12 will betray me. He said, I will be struck. And the term that he used meant dealt a heavy and decisive blow. But I will rise again. And Peter says, I'm with you. But then look at what Jesus says. Truly, the Greek is amen or amen, surely. With great certainty, I tell you this. At this very night, Before the rooster crows twice, all he's doing here, he's he's not signaling that there's going to be like this at 3 o'clock, at 6 o'clock. What he's saying is, listen, roosters will crow as the sun comes up. And before the rooster crows twice, meaning that before there is sunrise, in the next few hours, you will deny me three times. The word deny means to declare that you do not know or are not related to a person or event. This reminds me of parenthood and childhood. Let me just give you a scenario. Maybe you can relate to this as a parent, maybe as a child, but how about if parents are in one room and children are in another and boom, there's a sound. Something breaks. It's a great opportunity for gospel-centered parenting. Because here comes the parent. And what is the reaction of the child? I didn't do it. Denying association with the event. Why? Because the child wants to avoid judgment. Wants to avoid pain. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is, listen, when I am struck, when you are on the line, 
you will deny me. I mentioned to you that that word that is translated in chapter 9, cause to sin is important. Here's where we're going to talk about that. When you go back to chapter 9 and you look at verse 42, 43, 45, and 47, it says that if something causes you to sin, something should happen. Remember, if your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Metaphorically, not literally. If your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. If you cause a little one to sin, what are you supposed to do? It's better for you to put a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause a little one to sin. And we studied this at great length, and we said that two primary influences are the greatest causes for sin. Would you write these down? The first one is self-preservation. That when push comes to shove in your life, what is most important to you is self-preservation, self-exaltation, self, self, self. But we also studied in that is that one of the second, either equal or close second, greatest influences for sin is Babylon. And I'm not talking about a city in the Middle East in the ancient world. I'm talking about the world system that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 talks about. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following after the king of Babylon, who is Satan, who is presenting to us this world system that appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Listen, all you have to do is watch commercials and see. That is what this world system is designed for. I watched the games last night. And I knew this message was coming up, so I paid attention to the commercials. And I can tell you, not one commercial I watched promoted others first to the glory of Christ. Not one commercial I saw championed a biblical view of love. They are all designed to allure us Through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that is this world system. Beloved, you may not know because I don't know it. That's everywhere. And so, friend, what are you allured by? Is it status? Is it money? Is it the neighborhood? Is it the car? Is it comfort? Because, beloved, when push comes to shove, how will you respond? You know what's interesting is that often God uses persecution and suffering in our lives to produce what that song talked about, good. Even what the enemy used for evil, God turns it to good. All things work together for what? For good, the Apostle Paul says, but we are so influenced by self-preservation and the Babylon system that we will apply our definition of good when Paul gives it to us in the next verse. Good is conforming us to the image of Christ. That means if you get the big one. If you have a circumstance where you have to move from the neighborhood of status to the neighborhood of shame, if you find out 
that medically you're not as healthy as what you thought you were. Whatever it is in your life, if God so wills it, it is intended to conform us to the image of Christ. And if that is what is most important to you, then you will not be like Peter. Because Peter said emphatically, verse 31, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of his brothers said, same. So the question must be asked, could you deny? And the answer is yes. Emphatically, yes. The solution is now found in the meat of the sandwich. And it offers up the question number four, could you identify? Could you identify? Verse 22. And as they were eating... He took bread. Now, I mentioned to you, I do not believe this is the Exodus Passover from Exodus 12. There are several clues in the text. It's interesting that none of the four accounts in the Gospels mention anything about a lamb. Wouldn't you think that the eating of the lamb and the, the actual killing of the lamb and in that room that there would have been something, there would have been emphasis on a lamb in that meal, but there's no mention. Yes, it talks about lambs around that, but not in the meal. So I think that's one clue, but another clue is back in verse 14. Look at this. Say to the master of the house, where is, what does it say? My guest room. Then he says, where I may eat. Then verse 22, this is my body. Verse 24, this is my blood. I think there's enough details that the gospel writers provide to show that what Jesus is doing is he's instituting a new Passover And instead of focusing on the nation of Israel, instead of looking to the past, Jesus says, no, 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 this new Passover meal focuses on Christ and looks to the future. Let me show that to you from the vocabulary that he uses. Verse 24, this is the blood of the covenant. You can write down, if you'd like, Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, Zechariah 9 and verse 11, this vocabulary for the ancient audience would have been covenant vocabulary. Jesus is declaring that this covenant is my blood. He's referring to Jeremiah 31, 31. And listen, this is awesome. What's so awesome about this is that this covenant is not dependent upon us. Praise God. You see, the Mosaic Covenant was dependent on the Jews themselves. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, you obey, there's blessing. You disobey, there's cursing. And they failed miserably. But this covenant is completely dependent on the blood of Christ. Amen and amen. Then he also says, I will not drink again of the vine until that day, verse 25. When I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's turning our attention not to the past, but to the glorious future. To the new Jerusalem. 
And would you write down Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. This is awesome, where the prophet says, There will be a day in the future when all nations will gather and will sit at the table and will have the best wine and the best meat and will worship Messiah, the anointed one. Come, Lord Jesus. So, friend, the glorious reality that we have when we partake of the Lord's Supper in just a few moments is we're not looking on ethnicity. We're not dwelling on the past. We are, because of the victory of the covenant blood of Jesus Christ, longing and anticipating the future. But then he also says something very interesting in verse 23. He took a cup, as best as we can tell from historical documents, The Passover meal for the Jews was everyone had their own cup of wine. And they would drink four different times. But it says here that Jesus took a cup, singular, and when he had given thanks, he gave it, singular, to them. And they all drank of it, singular. And I think what Jesus is showing here is absolute unity. We're all in this together. This is where the concept of identify comes. The word identify means to associate closely with. This is why those who identify with KU basketball will wear crimson and blue tomorrow. This is why I have my faded 2008 national champion shirt. I need a new one. But I wear that thing and I will not wash it. And I will wear the same clothes because I identify with my basketball team. This is why when we're young and we have hair, can't do this anymore, but we see the actor that we like or the athlete that we like and we, we sculpt our hair to look like them. We identify with them. When, when people see us, they wanna, we want them to see the one with whom we identify. And beloved, this is the answer and this is the opportunity of the Lord's Supper is that it is an opportunity for them to see in us Christ. And there's two ways. One is what these represent, and the other is what it actually is. You can write down John chapter 6 and verse 53. When Jesus was talking about him being the bread of life, he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will be my disciple. And you remember, the disciples in the crowds were like, what? How can we eat his flesh and drink his blood? But by this point, and after Jesus had taught them, the disciples understood this vocabulary is not literal, it's symbolic. And there's still religions today that struggle with this. Is the bread his body? Is it spiritually his body? No, it's symbolic. It's clear in what Jesus says. It's clear in how the disciples respond. And so what is the symbolism? The symbolism, beloved, would you write this down, is that we're all in. Jesus says, unless you are all in, you cannot be my disciple. So the bread and the blood and the the juice are intended to symbolically portray how we become disciples of Christ. We're all in. The throne no longer has us on it. Our lusts, our desires are no longer what motivate us. We are for Christ first and others second and us last. 
That's how you enter into the family of God. And that's what this symbolism represents. But then we come to this is actually bread and this is actually wine. And why do we do this? It's because it's an opportunity for us to circle up and reflect and celebrate. And if this has happened in our lives, and if the patterns of our lives as we evaluate ourselves before we partake in just a moment is that we are healthy in our relationships, then what others will see when they see us is Christ and not us, and that's how you know. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. And this is your opportunity. The first question you must ask is, have you eaten the bread of Jesus' body and drank the wine of his blood symbolically? Are you all in? Have you come to a place in your life where you've realized, listen, I am on the throne of my life. I am a sinner. I deserve the judgment of my creator, and I cannot do anything about it on my own. Have you been introduced to the completed work of Christ? That when you die, what you expect God the Father to see is not how many church services you've been to, not how many good works you've done, not hopefully the scales go in your favor, but all the Father sees is Christ and his victory. And you have responded to that by turning from your sins and placing your faith in his completed work, having Jesus on the throne of your life. If you haven't, friend, would you do that right now? Would you do that right now? We are not promised another moment. This is your opportunity. Do not let it pass. Friend, if you have partaken and you are all in, we can have ebbs and flows in our lives spiritually, can't we? And the Lord's Supper is such a great opportunity where the scriptures command us to reflect on our relationship with God. Is there any sin in your life that you are not addressing? Is there any sin that you are playing around with or you've swept aside? Friend, now is the time to repent. What repentance means is you agree with what God says about it and you're willing to change Maybe there's something in your life where that needs to happen. Take care of it right now. But then the Bible also commands us to make sure that we are in right relationship with one another. And I think this is more difficult to deal with than just sin in my own life. If somebody has offended me or I have offended them, there's two sides to that coin. The one side is that if you are the one who is offended, you repent. If there is biblical evidence that you have violated God's standard, your responsibility is to repent, and maybe you haven't done that yet, and you say, well, but Jeff, it, there's shame involved with that, and there could be residuals, yes, but, but true repentance looks past that and says, for the glory of Christ, I'm willing to do what is necessary. But then the other side of that coin is forgiveness. When that person's memory comes up in your mind, 
not bitter. You're not wanting to tell others how horrible that person is. You're not wanting to be stuck in this place of offense. Maybe you need to have an attitude of forgiveness. Maybe somebody has asked you to forgive them and you have not extended it. You are not in right relationship with one another. And this is your opportunity. Some of you can take care of it right now because it can only take place in your heart. The other person is not accessible. So take care of it. Maybe the repentance part, you can only take care right now because the other person isn't available. Take care of it right now if you can. But if not, don't let grass grow under your feet after the service. Go take care of it. But then the Bible also commands us to be in right relationship with the leaders of your church. Doesn't mean we can't have disagreements, but it does mean when we disagree, we honor Christ in our disagreement. It means that we demonstrate humility in our hearts. It means that when we present what our concern is and there's not a biblical validation of it that we're willing to overlook it because love overlooks. And maybe you can take care of that right now. Maybe you can take care of it in your seats. And doing so might be challenging because it might mean that, ah, this one, maybe you were wrong. Maybe it means it's humility that you have to Express, and that's not always easy. Whatever it is, if you can take care of it right now, take care of it. If not, do not let grass grow under your feet after the service. Take care of it because the Lord's Supper is a great gift and privilege to make sure we are in right relationship with Christ. And to the degree that we are, our identity is in Christ, and people will see Him when they see us. And that's how we know.